This episode of See Here is dedicated to the memory of Michael Hutchinson. to See Here Podcast, episode 56, on the other end of a Skype connection out in Bath in England. I have Mr. Bernard Stickwell. Good evening. Good evening to you, sir. I can't introduce anyone else because we don't have anyone else. That's a bit of a tragedy. Our good comrade in arms. Tim has gone back to Canada and is setting himself up, so he needed a month to get the internet working and to get things going back in his house so we're giving him the month off he's entitled to that he needs to uh to catch up on all that poutine he's missed we know that tim loves yeah. his poutine so um he'll be back next month all poutined up all maple syruped up and mm. he'll be ready to talk with us about next month's film and on a more serious note, we were supposed to be having film professor from Kentucky College, Michael Benton, join us for another show. He'd been on the show previously. This month's film was actually a request from Michael. So we'll be talking about his selection in absentia. But Michael had a family emergency, which meant he had to pull out with, uh, I think, only a couple of hours ago before we started recording this. So, Michael, hope you're OK. Hope your family is OK. And we'll look forward to getting you on a show sometime in 2019. But as they say in American musicals of the 1940s, the show must go on. So Bernie and I are here to entertain you and enthrall you with our discussion about 1986 film Out of My Hometown, Dogs in Space. Doing a Muppet Show thing there. (laughs) So we'll be back after the trailer to talk about the film. And uh, I'm really, really, really looking forward to hearing what you have to say about this, Bernie. Because in a way, this is your pick. We each had films from our requests list. And this was the one that you picked from the request list. So I'm looking forward to hearing what you have to say. We'll be back in a moment to talk about Richard Lowenstein's film, Dogs in Space. You're listening to see here. Oh, 
drugs and stuff. There's the trailer. The film is Dogs in Space, directed by Richard Lowenstein. I think only his second full-length feature film. Came out in 1986, starring Michael Hutchins, Saskia Post, and Chris Haywood, the three people who I knew. And there's a cameo appearance somewhere in there by Noah Taylor. I was trying to sort of work out where he was. This is well before Shine, well before he was famous. IMDB description, which once again has let us down. The film is set in the house, occupied by social misfits. The main storyline is that of a strange musician's relationship with a girl, their drug use, and his band. These events are surrounded by a chaotic myriad of subplots. Yeah, I think that description was written by someone that's, in a suit and tie. That's pretty poor, isn't it? Yeah, it's, it's yeah. pretty horrible. I'll add one other credit because I think it's fairly important for this film and I want to talk about this a little bit the cinematography was done by a fellow called Andrew de Groot and it's not just important to mention him because of the work that he's done but given that this film is biographical Andrew de Groot was one of the people who lived in the share household in real life so a lot of what we see here is not only through his eyes as a cinematographer but through his eyes as having experienced the events in this film Bernie, was this a film that you were already familiar with? Either had you you'd seen it before, you knew of its reputation. Tell us your history with this film, if you have one, and why you picked it. I first saw this in well when it came out on VHS, so probably 86, 87. I was well, I would have been 15, 16 years old at the time, so it was right in the heart of my teenage goth years. Um, so that was a big part of why it appealed to me, the sex, drugs and rock and roll aspect of it, I guess. Mm. This kind of connect I had with Suburbia, uh, another similar film that we covered yes. a while back. Again, similar subject matter, punks, music, drugs and so forth. So, yeah, I was curious to revisit it because I have not seen it since. That is kind of where I'm at with it, really. I think one key difference, and we'll get into this more in the episode, but one key difference, I guess, with Suburbia and Dogs in Space is that Suburbia more or less had an ongoing plot line. This is, I'm not even sure if you'd call these vignettes, but it's yeah. certainly a slice of life. Absolutely. Um, the other interesting thing about Dogs in Space, which I only realised upon this viewing, I never knew this initially, it's actually based on real people, a real house, real things that happened, isn't it? It's, That's right, um, It's yeah. based on uh, the kind of recollections of people who were there, which I, I didn't realise at the time. And a suburban, um, as I know, is just a kind of fictional thing, isn't it? So. Mm, that's right. So I've got to preface this with saying I'd never seen Dogs in Space. I remember when it came okay. out. And, well, before we started recording, I went and said to you how a certain member of my family won't watch anything with Nicolas Cage. And <laughs> I pretty much felt the same way. I won't listen 
listen to anything with Michael Hutchins. I've never been an excess fan. It's like waving a U2 flag at Tim. I am not just a sex object. <laughs> in excess, or, <laughs> or you're waving the in excess flag at me. Okay. It, it does the same thing what U2 does to you two guys. I can completely understand that, and I think we'll probably get into that when we talk about Hutchins and his performance in this. Yep. Let's not say anything else at this point, but uh, yeah, no. I, I fully get that, Morris. I understand that. I was never a fan, so I thought, well, I'm not rushing out to see this. Unfortunately, at the time, the film copped an R rating, and in Australia, unlike in the US, I guess R is like American X, so no one under the age of 18 is admitted. Okay. Rating has since been revised to MA, which means 15 or under, you'd need someone with mm-hmm. you over 15, you're okay. But it meant that the target audience of teenage in excess fans were not going to be able to see this so I'm not sure how that hurt the financial line at the time Do you think that the producers got Hutchins involved because they thought that he would bring kind of an audience with him or do you think that this was just something he was kind of trying to do to broaden his, uh, I don't know, his, his portfolio as it were, his CV well, okay. to try something new? I read a ton of articles and I can't remember if they mentioned this in the documentary that's on the Umbrella D DVD edition of Dogs in Space, mm-hmm. a deluxe DVD. And actually, sorry, but just very quickly, I should give a huge thanks to my great friend Paul Ryan, who prefers to be known as P.T. Ryan for obvious reasons. He loaned me his deluxe edition of this, which i got to say is like the Criterion edition of oh, Dogs in Space. Yeah. There's so much in the way of extras on this. It's wonderful. But there was a documentary in there called We're Living Off Dog Food. And I don't remember if it was there or if it was in the commentary. But what had happened was the director of the film, Richard Lowenstein, had already directed a few rock video clips which seems to be a common directorial thing to do to direct pop video clips he directed a few yeah. rock video clips for in excess and he happened to be in Cannes I think about 1984-85 I think with his film called Strikebound and in excess just happened to be there at the same time and they got together and we're just talking and Richard Lowenstein had long had it in his mind that he wanted to make a film about his time in this share household in the suburb of Richmond here in Melbourne and I think he got together with Michael and they were tossing the idea around and while they were talking to a potential producer about some other project and the producer looked very bored and then he said oh but Michael and I have been talking about this film about this share household that we've been doing and uh, Michael said oh oh uh, did we oh okay not so much because he wanted Michael Hutchinson's star power he did yeah. want to do something with Michael and Michael apparently felt like he had a foot in either camp he wanted the popularity and the fame within excess, but he wanted the street credibility that sure. doing something like this would afford him. And Richard Lowenstein wanted this film made. But it wasn't because he sort of thought, oh, Michael Hutchins will pull millions of people in. At least that's how I understand it from the interview. Sure. And, and the sure, okay. that I heard. That kind of makes sense. Yeah, mm. yeah. Mm. So I watched this for the first time for the program. And I mean, it's... You know, shame on me in a way, because as we were speaking before we started recording properly, Bernie, I really like to champion Australian film. And, you know, this was, I think, regardless of the fact that it had Hutchins in it, who I'm not a fan of, but I knew it was an important Australian film from the mid 80s. And it was something I should have come around to. So I'm really grateful to both Michael for requesting it and to you for saying, right, this is my pick. So I watched the film and just on a first impression basis, I came in 
probably expecting the wrong thing. My first okay. thought at the end of it was, what have I just watched? It just spoke to me as being really, really incohesive. And I didn't even see it as like a series of vignettes. I'm, I mean, I wasn't coming in expecting that I was going to be seeing an Australian version of The Young Ones. Hiya. Uh, this is a friend of mine called Mike. Uh, this is a friend of mine called Neil. Hello. And... That's a complete bastard I know called Rick. There, although there are characters, you, you do have your socialists, you have your hippies, you have your punks. Yeah, of course. You have the hard-studying engineering student. Lucio! You have the Lothario, the guy who just wants to get laid, and you have Michael Hutchins, who's the hedonist, who doesn't want to work, cares for nothing, and about nothing but himself. Sure, yeah. There was, until like the last 20 minutes of the film, there just seemed to be nothing led to the next thing on this first watch. I was watching it thinking, well, I'm really not enjoying this very, very much. Then I saw that, well, I've got to find some things to talk about. So then I watched um, this brilliant package, the documentary called We Living on Dog Food, where they spoke to a lot of the bands who were actually around in the scene at the time mm -hmm. and some of the actors from the film. And it was a bit of a talking head fest, but they had footage filmed at the Crystal Ballroom here in St Kilda and they spoke a lot about the north side of Melbourne punk scene and the south side of Melbourne punk scene and it put everything in context. All of a sudden I thought, right, okay, now I get what this film was trying to do and I watched it a second time but whilst I'm still not going to say it's one of the great films of Australian cinema, I enjoyed it a lot more and think it is a hugely important film and I found I really, really liked it and also putting in context that the film came out the same year as Crocodile Dundee and that was Australia's cinema face <laughs> to the world and Richard Lowenstein had said in his diaries which had been published and I want to refer to them a little bit later on directly but he'd said that he thought Australian films were generally shit and the rest of the world was laughing at us and this part of his growing up living in a share household in this punk period was something that cinema had ignored and he really wanted to make a film that would speak to people of his age group and obviously Crocodile Dundee was not going to do it and the, another film that came out that year that was big in Australia which is wonderful I don't think even Lowenstein could shit can this it was a film called Malcolm uh, if you haven't seen that search it out anyone of my age who is an Australian film fan will know and love Malcolm at least I hope they love Malcolm but two very 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 different films so anyway I didn't live in a share household I didn't have the goth identification and I was walking into this expecting a straight ahead narrative which I didn't get so it took to the second viewing plus watching the documentary that put this into context before I thought all oh, right now I get it now I really like this film my question to you though is okay so we like to think that a film should stand up on its own two feet and it took a documentary that put the period into context before I could appreciate it. And I don't know, maybe if I'd watched it a second time without watching the documentary, I still might have felt differently. But I'm going to go with this hypothesis that it took that documentary setting a scene which I didn't really know much about and an experience which I'd not had before I sort of finally got what the film was being about. Lowenstein didn't want to make a straight-out narrative. He wanted to have bits and pieces. He wanted to have the chaos of the household. So do you feel that a film needs 
a documentary occasionally to put it into context. It's, it's interesting you say that because I was going to ask you the very same thing. Okay. Yeah. I mean, can you say that a film doesn't succeed entirely if you need to watch a documentary to get some context for it so it will actually make sense uh, to you so I don't know I don't know whether it's just because I kind of have a bit more of an interest in that kind of scene that era of music and so on Mm -hmm. that watching the documentary as interesting and illuminating as it was I don't think it really added anything to my experience of the film Okay. for me personally and again I don't know whether that's just because Maybe because I've seen the film before as well. I don't know. I think maybe, like you say, you were coming at it from a slightly different angle and expecting something else. Because, I mean, obviously, this, uh, during the the, uh, late 70s and early 80s, I'm assuming you weren't uh, walking around with a giant mohawk. Oh, (laughs) I've I've hidden that photo well away. That was just a brief period of my life. Yeah, yeah. This wasn't your thing, was it? Punk and that, you know, at that time, that was not who you were or what you were doing. So No, but then again, on the other hand, I didn't live in Glasgow and... I wasn't into the drug scene and yet I find Train Spotting to be an incredible film but that's more a conventional narrative I'm wondering it's I think it's less to do with identification of a scene despite having sort of inferred that it might have been but I went in expecting a story from start to end or the very least a series of set pieces of vignettes we're going to tell a tale and this comes around to something that's with Lowenstein's artistic decision to make the film chaotic but also Andrew DeGroote's photography because one thing I noticed I don't know if you've noticed this where a lot of the time especially like in the the party scenes Mm -hmm. and also in the pub scene which I believe is filmed in the Crystal Ballroom in St Kilda where we don't focus on any conversation long enough to sort of think right what's this got to do with the narrative or what can we find out about this character it's almost like we're the audience just sort of observing we're walking here and it's almost like hey move on let's see what else is happening over there you're actually walking through the party yeah correct it's it's more about setting up the mood and Lowenstein, I read, was he was on the record for saying he didn't want to make a straight-out conventional narrative. He wanted you to feel like this was my time, and the best way to show this scene was to show it in a chaotic fashion. I think the photography has a lot to do with that, and that's why I think Andrew DeGroote mm-hmm. has done an amazing job. Sure, the editing will have a lot to do with it, and I haven't noted actually who the editor was on the film, my bad, but I think it's more to do with Andrew DeGroote's photography and Richard Lowenstein having worked out in advance, this is how I want the film to run. I want to show a little bit here, a little bit there. I don't want to tell conventional story. Or Hey, I think you're too hung up on, uh, on narrative, Daddy. You need to uh, (laughs) free your mind a little bit because Richard Lowenstein was there and this is, you know, it's based on his diaries and his memoirs. I guess that's how memory works. It's not necessarily a series of vignettes, but it's Mm. a series of situations, scenes, conversations that you remember parts of. It's almost as though all this stuff is going on in the house. Uh, This is what you were saying. It's like it just places you in there as though you're wandering around. It's like someone's just set up cameras in every room, recording snippets of what's going on and then just editing that together. Mm. You can make a correlation between that kind of chaotic approach to how the film is put together with 
what's actually going on with the people there and the, the kind of the art and the music that they're creating, the lifestyle that they're living. You know, I, I guess it's, I think it actually works well as a kind of cinematic representation of, I guess, the mindset of the people there at the time. And as Richard Lowenstein was there at the time, it, I guess it kind of makes sense. I guess he's, he's captured that really well. As I said, after the second viewing, I got that and I 100% agree with you. I still think that there's some shortfalls even taking that into account but overall I appreciated it a lot better and one of the things that I think he said in the commentary and that made a whole heap of sense he's a big fan of Robert Altman oh and, sure yeah you can see that can't you yeah well, yeah he said in particular the film that he was trying to emulate not in content style obviously but in terms of cinematic approach was Nashville now it makes 100% sense Oh yeah, yeah, you can see that definitely. Fixed it, Tim. Shut up, Chuck. Hi, Tim. This is Sue. Hello, Sue. Hi. Tim, can I borrow your Nino record? Sam! Can you borrow it? You've still got it from last time. Right, I've Tim, given up worry. trying to steal it back. What have you done with my sticks? The biggest shortcoming I found watching it this time, and I don't know if this is kind of a byproduct of the way that Lowenstein decided to put it together, but you don't spend enough time consecutively with characters to build up much of an attachment or kind of feel for who they are. The problem I have with it this time is just I, I couldn't really warm to any of the characters. Most of them seemed fairly unlikable. I, you know, I guess that's, again, part of the punk mindset in a way, isn't it? Mm. And, you know, that, that kind of nihilism and uh, so on. But I don't know. I just I didn't really care about people too much in this. Is that, I don't know. Is that me or? No, it's, look, it's not you. I think the one character in the film who and I don't think we get a whole heap of time devoted to Michael Hutchins because it really is an ensemble piece. Yeah. But yeah. the Michael Hutchins character is the one character in the film who you can come away from saying that, OK, I know something about who he is. The rest are more snapshots. You're completely right. And that, I guess, was sure, my problem yeah, with yeah. the film the first time, was I thought, okay, not only are we not getting enough situational stuff, but we're also not finding enough time to sympathize or not sympathize with any of the characters in the yeah. film. But, you know, given that it's yeah. a group of people in a share household and their day-to-day -day lives, it's more about him trying to establish this time of joy and what it meant to him. But, yeah, look, the thing with the Michael Hutchins character called Sam, who was based on a real-life singer of a band called The Ears... <laughs> singer's name was Sam Savashka, who shows up in the documentary We're Living Off Dog Food. Yes, yeah. His character, right from the beginning of the film, we find out that he's a bit of a wimp. You know, well, the, the opening scene of the film, which was really shot at the MCG, has a whole bunch of the characters from the household, plus thousands of others, 
waiting in line for tickets for a David Bowie concert. And this is all real. This is all part of Richard Lowenstein's actual experience. And there's a group of thugs who ride up in their cars and start, <laughs> they think, oh, we're going to intimidate these wimpy goths. One of them comes out, and I, I could have sworn it was Gary Waddell, who you might remember as the cowardly mechanic slash lion from Oz, the film that we spoke about a year or two ago. Oh, yeah, yeah. It, it's, not, yeah. it's not him, but I, from the accent, the Reminded way he Reminded you spoke, of him, yeah. Oh, completely. Oh, my goodness. You know, he, he was the go-to guy for the Bogan. Yeah, yeah. Basically, Michael Hutchins gives no resistance, goes into fetal position, and it takes his girlfriend... Anna, played by Saskia Post, to look after him and a few of the other people to look after him. But, you know, not just sensitive guy, he's very narcissistic, he's insensitive to his girlfriend. There's one key scene in the film where he basically sticks it to both his mother and his girlfriend. His mother comes around and says, oh, I've brought you a meal and I've done your washing for you. No drinks. Sorry, I'll go and get something. He gives her no thanks, wolfs down the meal, smokes a cigarette and his mother just drives off and then he starts getting it on with another girl in the household just as Anna rolls up. So we know what this character is. He's narcissistic and really not the sort of person who I'd want to hang any time with and you sort of wonder what did Anna actually see in him. But apart from him and maybe sort of seeing Anna as she seems like a lovely sort of person but we don't know enough about her but we don't really know much about anyone else they're all a little bit more caricatures and I think yes I agree with you that is a failing of the film but it probably works with Lowenstein's modus operandi which was I wanted to show you the mood I don't want to show you who these people are I just want to show you this is what we did this is how we hung out well I guess this is the nature of if you're you know if you are going to make a film which isn't a traditional narrative then I guess the risks that you run is that you're not going to be able to give linear character development to people and yet I guess you still need a little bit of that because at that moment where I just sort of mentioned where Anna discovers Sam playing around with this other girl in the household, she drives off teary-eyed and goes, spends an evening with her mum. I don't want to sound insensitive, but I just sort of thought, oh, well, he's a jerk. Get over it. Rather than... I was exactly the same. Yeah, yeah. I don't know whether this is the the fact that we're uh, middle-aged gentlemen now and looking back on... uh, (laughs) these 20 year old morons it's difficult not to be a little bit more conservative at all isn't it i don't think it's so, I, think, I don't think it's to do with being conservative i mean we are middle-aged gentlemen but mm-hmm. I, I think it's more to do that we're not given enough i think it's not until the end of the yeah. film that my heart broke a little bit and i'll just say at this point spoiler, yeah. spoiler alert we will be giving away the end of the film because it's an important scene to be talking about so you have a little bit of time left but we will be spoiling the end of the film right well firstly as you're probably already aware all the welfare schemes put into operation by the sacked labor government have been ruthlessly slashed by the present fascist phrase of dictatorship it eats into the living tissue of the working classes like a tumour. All part of the workers, Our yes. Yeah. To pass a motion of refusal to even acknowledge the institutionalised bureaucracies that perpetrate these social conditions, right? So, we're organising a benefit concert for bands such as yourselves whose music epitomises an anarchist... Anarchistic? 
anarchistic reaction to the present totalitarian society and attempts to break down the crushing monopolies of the multinationals. No future, right? Right. How much money are we going to get? Okay, I wanted to ask you what you thought of Hutchins' performance. We were talking a little about the character. It seemed to me that he was either doing a really good job of playing an asshole, <laughs> and, and certainly from the documentary, the, the guy that he was playing, I could kind of see him as being a bit of a, a kind of vain asshole at that period. I don't know. So maybe he was doing a really good job of playing an asshole, or he was just doing a really bad, un- nuanced job of, uh, of, of playing someone with a bit more... Or a character in depth. I, I, I don't know. I can't quite decide. I think the character is, in some ways, underwritten. Even though he's the one sure. character that we come away from the film saying, "Right, we've pinpointed what your character is actually like." I don't think Hutchins has great acting chops. He doesn't have many lines to deliver, but every time he does say something, you think, "All right, yeah, okay, yeah. that's what your character does." I can sort of see that. But when we sort of think, "Right, okay, well, Australia gave Mike." Michael Hutchins to the acting world. England gave us David Bowie, which is probably like the, the comparison that you could make. And I thought, right, well... Oh, that's, that's a heck of a comparison, isn't it? Well, I, I thought, yeah, well, Bowie, by his own admission, he says he wasn't really an actor, but I'll take Bowie every time. I think he's done a great job in uh, some of the films that I've seen him in. I mean, yeah, sure, he's not a traditional actor, but, you know, you watch him in Merry Christmas, Mr. Lawrence, or The Last Temptation of Christ, but you you get the impression that he took acting seriously. I get the feeling from this. It was like, hey, Michael, remember what it was like back in the scene, back in the day? Just just do that. And Michael Hutchins knew Sam Savashka. Well, there's a couple of moments, I think, in the documentary where you see Savashka and Hutchins together talking about life you know, Actually, you're right, yeah, yeah. Back in those yeah. days. So you, you had Sam Savashka on set, probably sort of advising him, mope a little bit more. And, and really, you know, with, with his hair hanging over his face and his drooping, I think just watch any film clip of In Excess and it's not a great stretch of the imagination that the posing he was doing was not a long way from you know, who yeah. Michael Hutchins was. Yeah. And I, I'm, I'm sorry to keep coming back to this because he could have been the sweetest guy on the planet. I don't know. So I don't want to sell him short for that. But I think this, it, Sam Savashka was a character who he knew and he was probably told, look, just you're a randy bastard who wants to jump his girlfriend every chance he gets. And that's the funny thing. Every time he's with Anna, he does a and throws it at the yeah, floor yeah, and just yeah. wants to start shagging her. As much as I'm unsure about Hutchins in this, he does have something. And I don't know whether it's just a, a charisma or a certain kind of warmth. But considering, you know, the character he's playing is kind of an asshole, I think he does an okay job of making him just kind of a little bit likable mm. whereas you know people like that in real life just tend to be real kind of dicks and they're just a pain and you don't want anything to do with them with with Hutchins in this you can I don't know it just brings a grain of something to that maybe I don't imagine that he could have carried the film if he was going to be there for 80% of the screen time oh sure no not at all not at all but it, I'm, I'm talking more like charisma or, well I don't I don't know presence if, perhaps if you, if you do want to say that he has some level of charisma I, I guess you know, I'd have to acknowledge that he does have something there but every time he was in the room and he's flicking food at Anna or he's yeah. Well, that one scene, as I mentioned, with his mother delivering him his food and he's just wolfing yeah, it down, yeah. not barely acknowledging her. I just thought, oh, any level of charisma that you're supposed to have, oh, 
But once again, could be good acting chops. So you never know. I don't know. I guess uh, he never did enough other stuff to to really judge, did he? I think this was his only film. I mean, maybe somewhere down the He's, line. Oh no! You'd be surprised. He plays Percy Shelley in Frankenstein Unbound. Oh, I forgot about that. I, I mean, I never saw it, but I vaguely yeah. recall reading that he'd done that. Okay. Did he do a good job? Have you seen that? I, I've, I've not seen it. I suspect he's probably dreadful because the film's pretty bad. <laughs> <laughs> Give him the benefit of the doubt, I suppose. Yeah, pers- yeah, yeah, 1990, yeah. So they, yeah, there you go. But all his other uh, IMDb credits are in excess videos. Right, right. <laughs> Maybe the uh, acting bug didn't really bite him. No. Once upon a time, there was a green monster, and he ate a whole train full mm. of obnoxious people. Of course, he got a very bad case of indigestion that lasted for many weeks, and so he eventually decided he needed some medicine. Let's talk a little bit about the music in the film. Like the film that you mentioned before, Suburbia, this is not, in the traditional sense, a music film, but there's plenty of band footage. But given that it's about the Melbourne punk scene, it's about the culture as much as anything, so this 100% qualifies for what we do. Mm-hmm. But I really learned a lot of interesting stuff. It was peripheral to Dogs in Space in the We're Living on Dog Food documentary. Yeah. So yeah. they mentioned a bunch of band venues that I had not heard about in years. They were all in my head because I remember seeing adverts for them in the music press or hearing them mentioned sure. on the radio. Venues like the Champion and the Exford Hotel and the Tiger Lounge in Richmond. And the Crystal Ballroom was definitely the most famous of a lot of them. And the building that the Crystal Ballroom was in is still there. It's a heritage-listed building. And that, oh, so right. that ran as a punk venue, I think, for about seven or eight years. It went through a series of different names. It was like contained within a building overall, which was called the Seaview Hotel, I think. And there, there is still, if you go past there now, mm-hmm. you go up at sub-street level, there's still a pub venue there. I think it's just more for drinks rather rather than for bands, but upstairs, you walked up a flight of stairs, it was the Seaview Ballroom or the Crystal Ballroom. Went through a series of different names. That venue combined a lot of local punk bands and a bunch of international bands, so... Did you ever see anybody there, Morris? No, I had not. The venues I was going to, there was like the Corner Hotel in Richmond, which is still around to this day. I'm trying to think what other pubs I went to. A lot of pubs around Richmond. The Central Club Hotel. Yeah. Uh, In St Kilda, I went, like, there was a venue about 500 metres down the road called the Prince of Wales, which had a lot of other stuff as well. It had a lot of jazz, but it also had a lot of punk stuff. I wasn't really, as I said, much into the punk scene at the time. Sure, yeah. But that venue, it was widened to more than just punk. Mm. Uh, so that venue, which we see in the film, and it's pretty sort of exciting to see a venue of the time. All this film was shot on location. This is not a set-based film. In the Crystal Ballroom, they had bands like The Boys Next Door and The Birthday Party, which you get to see a bit of in We're Living Off Dog Food documentary. So where you get to see uh, Nick Cave with his goth haircut working in the same band as Roland oh. S. Howard doing uh, Shivers. <laughs> Suicide. But it really doesn't suit my style. 
Roland S. Howard, I must say, my favourite guitar player of all time. He actually says in the documentary he never thought much of himself as a guitar player. So. Yeah, well, you only need a couple of chords. You just say it's all, <laughs> it's all attitude and it's all soul and spirit, I guess. Isn't yeah, it? yeah. I love the fact that he was quite down on Nick Cave's version of Shivers as well. Right, right, right. He totally uh, missed the point. It's not what it was about at all. And that's gone on to become, you know, like they talk about in the documentary, uh, an Australian sort of post-punk classic, hasn't it? Well, I mean, you listen to that and you sort of think, right, okay, a lot of what the Bad Seeds did is derived from that arrangement of Shivers. So Roland S. Howard can like it or not like it and say, no, you completely missed my message. But it sort of did define, I think, a lot of the Bad Seeds yeah, style so. going going later on certainly the ballads side of the bad seeds style so i'm glad that I both think, versions uh, exist think, oh absolutely yeah yeah because I, I do really like the nick cave I love the boys next door version but i really like the Roland s howard version as well mm. but it, I, I think he was the uh, the unsung genius in the birthday party Roland s howard when talks about nick cave and mick harvey but Roland was a big part of it i think mm, mm. Roland S. Howard wormhole here. Have you, have you seen the documentary Auto Luminescent it's by Roland be, S. Howard? You know, I Tim has been at me for ages. You're gonna watch that. You're gonna watch. It? I say, yeah, yeah, we'll cover it on the show. So I still haven't watched it, but I'd it, love to do it at some point. Maybe next year we can do that one. Hundred percent, we'll be doing that. I know it's on yeah. Tim's radar, so um, yeah, we will be talking about that. Another Lowenstein directed film. I, yeah, I don't know if he directed it. He produced it, didn't he? But I'm oh, not I, sure. If, I know he was involved with it in okay. some capacity, but so coming back to the Crystal Ball. Room. Yes. The other bands that I found out that had played that venue were bands like Hunters and Collectors. Mark Seymour writes about those days in his biography, which is a very funny book and really well worth you searching out. The Laughing Clowns with Ed Cooper had played oh, there. Oh, yeah, yeah. The Go-Betweens, the great Brisbane band. Yeah. In Excess themselves had played at the Crystal Ballroom. And in the international phase of things, The Cure... The Dead Kennedys and XTC oh, had gone and played the Crystal Ballroom. So this Holy was moly. this was not just a little pub with a yeah. stage to the side for 10 people to attend. This was an important room, a really, really important room. So I think it's great that Richard Lowenstein had access and was able to shoot there, and he really wanted to make this film authentic. One point in the documentary... It was fascinating to see that both Roland S. Howard and the members of the band, the Primitive Calculators, speak about the North versus South divide in Melbourne. And that's long been a thing where we've often gone and thought St Kilda at the time had a better band scene than what was happening in Fitzroy on the north side of the city. Of course, unfortunately, nowadays, the entire band scene is based in the North and there's only one or two really great venues in the St Kilda area nowadays. The St Kilda band scene is decimated and I'm sure that there'll be locals who'll be saying, you don't know what the hell you're talking about. But really, there were a ton more venues many years ago in St. Kilda. And one such venue, though, I'm waiting to see what happens. The Esplanade Hotel has been closed down for the last two years or so because they said that they were doing a renovation. It's allegedly going to be opening up in November. I'm watching this space with great interest because that's a really, really important venue. And I've seen a lot of great bands there. So I'm looking forward to seeing that coming. That's such an important part of St. Kilda. Really, out of all those old venues, the only one that's still standing, at least sort of the big venues, was the Prince of Wales Hotel. So that's still standing. A very different venue to what it was, but it's still a great pub. And 
anyway, I've gone and digressed, but... No, uh, not at all. It's interesting stuff. It's, you know, it's great that there's at least one place there that you, know, you can kind of feel the history in the walls, can you? Even if it's absolutely not the place that it once was, it still represents an important thing and it still carries that, that importance for a lot of people. So, yeah. Even back then, they're saying, yeah, the, the north side and the south side, we had this war. <laughs> Fellas, let's keep the war between Melbourne and Sydney, all right? Let's not fight amongst ourselves. But it's, it's kind of art school versus rock and roll, isn't it, in a way? Well, that's it's, uh, it's, that's it's what they were the claiming. old story, isn't it? Yeah, well, they, yeah. they were saying Fitzroy was rock and roll and St Kelda was art school. And so you know, mm-hmm. if Roland S. Howard and Nick Cave had shown their faces in a pub in the north side, they would not have been welcome and... <laughs> incredible to think now you know because how much both of these musicians are revered yeah but it just seems silly to think that you know back in the day when they were starting you know, we don't want you art school wankers coming into our pub yeah I, I was really interested really fascinated to, to hear that side of things but some of the bands that were playing in Fitzroy had these great names like Potato Co-op too fat to fit through the door yeah that's the one that sticks in my head yeah yeah and Thrush and the Cunts they were (laughs) they were destined for big things one thing the movie does really really well is actually recreate the bands and the kind of live experiences because obviously you get to see some kind of original footage of the of the bands in the uh, dog food documentary yes and uh, you know they kind of painstakingly recreated the looks of the you know the people playing the bands and i wouldn't i don't know are there is it actually some of the original bands playing or yes it is that's the great thing so you see all those bands that i mentioned so we get uh, primitive calculators calculators who are fantastic they're so good we do get even at one point i'm pretty sure we get the ears which the dogs in yes. space band in the film is based yep. on so you do get to see sam savashka watching a film being made that's well not quite about him but he's a central that's part a of the fairly surreal experience absolutely yeah. absolutely but the thing about the film about dogs in space is that it was made only a short time after that scene was a thing we're not looking yeah. at something like greece or american oh, graffiti where it's 20 30 years down the track and yeah it's five or six years later isn't it maybe about six years after the scene had started i mean i, th- I think the film starts out in the 78 and there's no real time definition i sort of watched it the first time thinking sure. that it was like a few days in the life but listening to the commentary they said no well it's whilst it's not really defined this could be several months or several years in the life yeah because yeah. it's it's all i remember this happened at this bit and i remember this happened at that point it's not really defined feasibly like if the film ends like in 19 82 it's only like four years after yeah. the scene had which been which is nothing seen. isn't it no. so but I, I guess looking at it now you know and particularly watching the dog food documentary as well because that was only made a few years ago yep. and obviously everyone's a lot older in it and you, you just kind of automatically think oh yeah there must have been a a pretty big gap between when this happened and when they made it but quite the reverse so what's this davis It's a sheep, Lucio. We took a trip up the country last night and got you a little friend. And if you don't like him, we can always eat him. 
I wanted to sort of just mention something about the reaction to the film at the time. So from what I've read, this is a lot worse with a film that we didn't quite get around to revisiting for this episode. And that was a film from 1975 called Pure Shit, also made in Melbourne. A very different film to Dogs in Space about a group of people trying to get a fix over one night in Melbourne. But that film had been decried as pure evil and was banned by the conservative press. The Film Critics Community of Australia did not take well to this film at the time, possibly because, as what you were saying, there were a bunch of middle-aged people who had no identification with the scene. Sure, yeah, yeah. And they were seeing it for what it was, you know, very disjointed and not the straight narrative, and they didn't get a chance to sort of revisit until, like in the last few years, where it's been reassessed and is now really quite well-loved. But online, I found someone had gone and published an article which included extracts from Richard Lowenstein's diary of the time. And there's a couple of paragraphs I wanted to read here because I think... It's really quite important, and it says a lot about what Lowenstein was trying to do. So at the time, they were saying, oh, yeah, this film is just about a group of self-absorbed, narcissistic punks, which is partly true, but it was a film of, let's face it, a film of joy, a film of happiness, a film of youth, and what they were going through to enjoy the scene, rather than sort of decrying right from the beginning, drugs are evil, drugs are bad. And really, the drugs... It's only a small part of the film. I, I want to come back to that in a moment, but this is what Richard Lowenstein had to say. He said, It was an idea I had tossed around with some fellow film school students in 1979 when we were living together in a large student house in the inner city suburb of Richmond, Melbourne. As the punk era finally began to disappear along the expected heroin path, its sense of community, idealism, militancy, and innovation began to be replaced with the isolation, homogenization, rampant materialism, and reactionary politics of the 80s. An idyllic era was ending as it had for the beat generation, the mods, the rockers, the hippies, and now it was for the punks. So I want to come in a few minutes to the ending of the film because that really emphasizes a lot what he's saying there. But I think why Lowenstein wanted to show the joy of the period, that's what he experienced. He said, this is my youth. It was a happy time for me. I'm not going to bring the whole film down by making it a film about drug use. Yes, there was drug use. and He doesn't shy away from it, does he? he but it's not no, he, It's not the point of the film. No, yeah, co- yeah. Yeah, absolutely, absolutely. So I didn't notice this so much the first time, but the second time, I thought, oh, this stood out to me. There's a scene in the crystal ballroom, the first time where you see heroin use being taken. And mm-hmm. it's a couple of guys, I can't even remember if they were from the household or not, or just a couple of guys at the bar who were in a lavatory cubicle and these two guys they're taking a fix and Lowenstein shows this as not an exciting thing they seem to be in a lot of pain but then the camera cuts back out to the band so it's just a moment but the lighting it's neon lighting it's ugly their pain is very obvious but it doesn't focus on that they say right well here's one part now we're going back to the band and that's possibly what the film critics of the time objected to they probably thought well you're just treating this like it's another moment and Lowenstein is saying yeah, it's, it's it is just another moment very matter it, of fact isn't it yeah it, it is but when we get to the end of the film he says right now I'm going to talk about the tragedy because it's not only about the tragedy of a main character's life in the film being taken and I, the film that came to my mind when watching this was Boogie Nights, the middle of the film where William H. Macy shoots himself and after he shoots his wife and whoever it is that she's having sex with, that 
point in the film is a demarcation. The first part of the film, it shows the porn industry is glamorous and they're all like family and they're all friends and everyone's having a great time. It's all very exciting and vibrant. That's what Paul Thomas Anderson wants to show in the first half of that film. And that point where, where William H. Macy shoots himself and shoots his wife, that's a demarcation. Everything turns to shit after that in the second half of the film. We don't get a second half what happens after the tragedy at the end of Dogs in Space, but I tend to think that's where he says, right, this is a demarcation point between those wild hedonistic days in the share household and what happens afterwards is the yeah. what he describes as the homogenization and the rampant capitalism you of can, the rest of the 80s. Yeah, I think you could certainly make that, that uh, connection, couldn't you? It does all kind of fall apart after that. Mm. People leave, people move on. give it away for i mean those of you who haven't seen it you might want to pause here we'll still be here when you get back but for those of you who have seen it there's this scene where michael hutchinson's character and saskia post's character the two characters they shoot up and saskia post's character had already had one drug fix earlier on in the film and it was more something that she was doing to please michael hutchinson's character it wasn't something that she particularly felt strongly about doing, but she did it to please him and it had a negative effect on her. So this is the second time in the film where she does it. And what we see, well, what we think is she's falling asleep and then we hear Iggy Pop's song, Endless Sea, which I think was a perfect backdrop to what the visuals of what we see. She wakes up, walks through the household and every other character in the film offer her something that she refuses they say oh you want something to eat no would you like to have some alcohol no the house lothario says you want to come upstairs with me no i think lucio says oh you want a sandwich no and then she walks outside (laughs) she walks outside and we see a rotoscoped limousine which also could be taken as a hearse michael hutchins's character walks out looking better than he has the rest of the film but it's all rotoscoped and we realize at that point oh no this is a drug trip she's overdosed and this is what's going on in her mind before she dies and that was the one point in the film where I thought, okay you've saved the emotional kicker for the end and Lowenstein didn't want to bring any emotion in before because he wanted this to really be a big shock to the viewer at the end of the film and I think from a cinematic perspective from an emotional perspective that three minutes is pure brilliance and it breaks your heart and it's artistically so well done. The limousine or the hearse goes out into the distance, fades out into the night, screen fades are black and then we see a shot of Saskia Post in the attic in the house and she's dead, completely bereft of life. I gotta say, Morris, I'm gonna break your heart here. I thought that whole sequence was really, really overdone. I thought it was laid on way too thick. I thought it was shot like a kind of 80s pop video mm-hmm. and it does kind of seeg into a in excess pop video which ends the film which is another bad choice I think you know I can understand you you getting that from it and I think that was the, the desired effect that's what he was going for but for me that just felt very obvious and very overwrought and 
not a surprise at all when that started happening. When she gets out and starts walking around the house, it's obvious that she's she's dead. I said, yeah, I, I, that just didn't work for me at all. I'm okay. afraid. Sorry, I don't want to be a naysayer here. But. <laughs> I think that given that Lowenstein wanted to have that demarcation point between the joy of his nostalgia from living in that house and going out to see bands and all the chaos of living in that house... And he wanted to say, right, well, we have to have this moment where it all went belly up. Uh, I think a drug death was going to be inevitable. And Sam Savashka of The Ears and Richard Lowenstein didn't speak for many years, not until Lowenstein came to direct the We're Living on Dog Food documentary. That was because Savashka always resented how Lowenstein represented him in that scene at the end. Lowenstein's response, I think, doesn't really ring true with me because, um, okay, so on the one hand, I think Savashka was not happy that he was presented as a bit of a moper, but he came to realize, yeah, all right, that's more or less accurate. But there was a real death. She died from a heroin overdose. But Savashka had forever said, that was not my fault. That did not happen because I pushed that on her. And Lowenstein said, well, I was taking dramatic license with it. That bit is fiction. This is not meant to be an autobiography. Mm. But given that there was so much else in the film where Lowenstein had gone and said there were bits of dialogue that were taken from direct life and there was so much else in the film that all the people who lived through it and all these characters were real life characters. To choose that particular incident to then decide to take a bit of artistic license with it as well, that just doesn't quite ring true, does it? It doesn't. So I, in that regard, I don't blame Savashka for taking issue with Lowenstein. And you know, Lowenstein went and said... Yeah, look, I, you know, I acknowledge that it's not your fault, but it works well cinematically. So It's interesting yeah. as well, when Savajka's talking about what happened in the uh, the dog food documentary, it looks like Lowenstein was actually pretty accurate with what actually happened. It's just uh, the way it was uh, some guy that Sam knew who bought this heroin from Thailand or something mm-hmm. and brought it over. And Anna, well, Christine was the actual Savajka's girlfriend, wasn't she? Um, and she was there. And so they all tried it. And then when Savajka woke up the next morning she was dead but and that's essentially what happens in the film isn't it but something different or how Anna got to that point uh, it's you know there's there's Lowenstein sort of implies she got there by a slightly different way I guess I think so yeah I I think in each case it's a tragedy no matter how it ends up but oh sure yeah if Savashka is a real innocent what he's saying is truthful then yeah it, it was a pretty crap thing on Lowenstein's part to say, right, well, this bit is just dramatic license. This little bit is fiction. I suspect the truth, as is normally the case, is probably somewhere in the middle, isn't it? Right, right. And uh, I guess we'll never know. Giving a little bit more flesh to the bones that you described about this, the segue into Michael Hutchins's performance at the very end of the film, the last scene of the film, has Hutchins in a suit and he's singing this song, Room for the Memory. There's a corner to this room But there's nothing left to remember There's time, the clock's on the wall But there's nothing left to remember I thought I'd do Now, 
we see there that he's got a band behind him. They fade into the dark. The suit is representative of, well, he was in this shitty band, Dogs in Space, at the beginning of the film. And here he is. He's made it. This is corporate 80s, not just for the guy in the suit and tie who goes to work in a big building in the central business district. A lot of bands that started out independent then went on to become megastars. And it could almost sort of be seen as, well, a dig at in excess themselves. I tell you, it's interesting you say that because I just assumed it was in excess. I didn't think it was actually the Sam character actually made it into a, a superstar of some kind. I, yeah, that just didn't occur to me. So no, I, well, I just thought they'd kind of tacked an in excess video on the end, <laughs> which seemed a bit it, crass. So it wasn't yeah. an in excess, but obviously because that's how Hutchins performs when he's within excess. That was no stretch of the sure, imagination yeah, yeah, for yeah. him to perform it like that. Of course, yeah. Ollie Olsen, who was the musical director of the film. Mm-hmm. That was, I think, a song of his making. Michael Hutchinson and Ollie Olsen went on to work again, put an album out under the name of Max Q. So, oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. So already had a musical affiliation, but it just seems to me that in this moment, I don't know whether Lowenstein said, go and create an in excess style of song. But, it, I mean, yes, it does sound very in excess, but it is not in excess. Yeah, yeah. But certainly okay. the fact you, that... You can understand my, uh, my error oh, there, 100%, 100%, 100%. Yeah, 100%. Yeah. It, it yeah. does look like that, and I, I certainly do think that there was something in there. Well, Michael, um, yeah, just do what you do, and I'll edit it in later on. I don't know. That's that's still a bit muddy to me. That still makes it it's still a little crass. Do you know what I mean? It's, it's not clearly uh, sort of outlined that that is actually what's going on. So I'd come up with this thought in my head. I thought, oh, I wonder if this is because he's moved on and he's now in a big band and all the times that were spent in the household are just a memory. And yeah, yeah. In the commentary, they said that that's what it was. I thought, oh, wow, I interpreted that correctly. Or at least I interpret it in accordance with what Lowenstein's intention was. Yeah, yeah. So, oh, no, I obviously didn't. I got completely the wrong end of the stick there. I mean, I guess, look, yeah, they could have ended at the cemetery because we, we do get this sure, moment. Yeah. The camera pans out and there's all the, the people from the household are all dressed in black and he's kneeling down at Anna's gravesite. And the film actually could have ended there. We won't see eye to eye on this, but I actually sort of think that making that little bit where he's singing that song in the suit and showing, right, well, he's moved on. He's become successful those days in the house. I think that was a good thing because Lowenstein is effectively saying, well, this is what the mid-80s have turned into. And he wanted to make a statement. Yeah, we had all this fun in those days. And look at where we've gone or look at where we're headed. You can absolutely read it that way, can you? Yeah, that does that does make sense. Mm. So, I don't know, maybe my hatred of in excess just rivals yours. <laughs> so I immediately jumped to the wrong conclusion. <laughs> oh, dear. There are probably a ton of other things where we could go. We haven't spoken about any of the other characters. We haven't spoken about the sheep or the or Lucio. Or do you have any final thoughts uh, before we wrap this um, up? I think we covered pretty much everything. I'm not sure how I feel about this film, though. I feel a little, I don't know, conflicted's probably not the right word, but uh, it wasn't the film I remembered it being, and I don't know whether that's a good or a bad thing. There's certainly aspects of it I really liked, but other aspects I didn't. And I, I, it's interesting, it feels like a, well, kind of makes sense, doesn't it? But it's uh, it's covering a, a period from 78 to 80, roughly, something like that. But it feels like a very very 80s film Mm -hmm. the kind of late 70s stuff doesn't quite ring true to me 
album. It feels like the 80s version of the 70s. But yep, yep. Yeah, sorry to be so vague, but I, I'm <laughs> not sure about this one. I'm undecided on this one. Okay, well, you give it another view, maybe another 12 months from yeah, now. You might yeah, have another yeah. have another opinion. Maybe uh, I just wasn't in the right uh, in the right sort of frame of mind when I watched it, but um, I, I didn't warm well, to it as much as I remembered initially kind of enjoying it. So. Look, I've had films where I came back to later on and I thought, Oh, I should have left that somewhere yeah. in the recesses <laughs> of my mind. Yeah. But yeah. for me, I'm still glad that yourself and Michael picked this one because if nothing else, it is an important film of the 80s. And even if the subject matter wasn't something that I lived through, I wasn't living in a share household, as we said at the beginning of the show. But then again, I've watched films about serial murders, and I haven't lived my life as a serial murderer either. You don't always not have that to we I- know of, anyway, Mark. Not, not, not that we know. Uh, yeah. But there's, we don't always have to identify with the subject matter to sure. sort of see yeah. it as a. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. Great work of cinema, and. I'm glad that we were watching this for the show because if I'd watched it just for the sake of it, I would have given it a one-off viewing and thought, no, not for me and walked away from it. And I gave it this second viewing and I thought, okay, now I understand what your intention is. And I'm still not going to sort of necessarily put it up in my list of great Australian films, but Mm -hmm. I certainly say it is a good Australian film. And I love watching anything that's made in my backyard, as as it were, and seeing the crystal ballroom and having the excuse to watch We're Living Off Dog Food as well was really exciting. Grateful to yourself and Michael for having picked this. And I, I hope that at least our conversation was interesting enough to you, Michael, if you're listening to this later on. He did say when he sent us a message that he had a lot to say about this film. Yeah, so I'd love to know. Interesting, wouldn't it? Yeah, yeah. He, I did see, like, on his blog site that he had shown this film in the last week or so to a student. He also runs something called the Bluegrass Film Society, so he did run this for them for his students. So I'd love to know what his perspective was, but oh well, uh, we'll just have to have a casual non-podcast conversation with him later on about this. So there you go. That's our conversation on Dogs in Space. I took some magic mushrooms once and I was petting my dog and all these blue and red sparks started shooting up between my fingers. And all these little rain clouds around her head and that's sort of raining on it. Fantastic. So we're going to start talking about next month's show and probably I should sort of like talk a little bit about the next five months. I'm not going to sort of give away everything that we're doing, but the show is going to be run a little bit differently, maybe with the exception of December's program. We've occasionally done interviews on this program with filmmakers and like last month's episode was a good example. The Icarus Line Must Die. and We spoke with the director. Four out of our next five films films are already planned and their interviews with directors or producers or writers with new music related documentaries and I hope that this is something that you're excited for Bernie because I'm always looking forward to speaking to people about the creative process well there's certainly a few coming up that I am very excited about there's a couple of films that I've really been keen to see and the fact that we're going to be talking to the directors is just uh, the icing on the cake so uh, Mm. yeah yeah it's going to be good we'll reveal them as we get to them however October's film I can talk about and I've been working a long time just to arrange a yes and a date and a time but we finally tied down producer podcaster writer historian Benjamin Hedden who has come up with what looks like is a fascinating documentary I saw the trailer for this at the cinema about a month ago while I was out watching the commemorative screening of 
the Blues Brothers after we lost Matt Guitar Murphy. And I was with my friend, the aforementioned P.T. Ryan, and he said, watching the trailer, he said, oh, I saw this at MIFF last year. It's fantastic. So the film is called Two Trains Running, and it's documentary set during the civil rights period in Mississippi. And we have two groups of young music fans during the early 60s when a lot of old blues artists who'd been recording in the 30s and the 40s and recorded for the Paramount record label had long stopped since recording music. But in the 60s, when there was the folk and blues revival, a lot of these would-be historians said, we've got to find these original people. So you have two groups of students, one group from New York, I think, uh, certainly one from the East Coast and one from the West Coast, going out to look for Skip James and Sun House. And they'd heard that they were living in Mississippi, but it's also at the same time where the Kennedy administration had gone and declared that segregation was now illegal. It all came to a head when the Ku Klux Klan and the police force in Mississippi were not going to have this newfangled non-segregation movement from the North telling them what to do. And there were a lot of tragic events. If you've seen the film Mississippi Burning, then you're familiar with this period in history. So this is music activism, politics, human rights, all bundled into the one documentary. So I'm so looking forward to speaking to Benjamin about this and watching the film. We're going to be getting historical and educational on you next month. So Two Trains Running, a documentary film for next month, who will be speaking with the film's writer and producer. If you want to join the Facebook group and get in contact with us and communicate with us, you can go to facebook.com forward slash groups forward slash see here, S-W-H-E-A-R. Or you can write to us at seeherepodcast at gmail.com. Don't forget, we're on Instagram as well. Indeed. Um, we do post occasionally. Um, you can find us, I think we are See Here Podcast, all one word. So, uh, or at See Here Podcast, isn't it? Uh, or is I, that Twitter? I don't I know. It's a no. Twitter thing. We're we not on Twitter. We don't, we don't, do, we don't do Twitter. <laughs> we don't do Twitter. See Here Podcast on Instagram. Look for us and like our uh, infrequent posts. We'd appreciate it. Come on, add some photos there, Bernie. You know, yeah, yeah, I know. Make it an exciting place for people to come visit. Of course. Uh, well, you know, they might be infrequent, but they are exciting. I'm looking forward to the three of us being back together next month and speaking to Benjamin Hedden about Two Trains Running. Bernie, have a wonderful month. You too, Morris. Thank you, uh, as always. Watch some great or shitty films, listen to some great or shitty music, and be nice to each other. And we'll speak to you next month on See Here. All the best. Cheers. Bye-bye. But I keep a poker face
It's NFL draft season, and that means it's time to start thinking about fantasy football. FantasyPoints.com features industry-leading experts and prognosticators using proprietary hand-charted data to help you score more fantasy points. FantasyPoints.com is the place to go for whatever kind of fantasy football you play. Whether you play fantasy football, daily fantasy sports, or do a little bit of everything, Fantasy Points has the meticulously researched content to guide you to victory. And why wait for the fall? Fantasy Points also covers the new spring football league, the UFL. Join the guru, John Hansen, Scott Barrett, Joe Dolan, and other massive names in the fantasy football universe with an exclusive offer. Use code Pantheon for 15% off any Fantasy Points package, including the all-in package, with access to every article, tool, and data nugget that Fantasy Points has to offer. That's FantasyPoints.com and code Pantheon for 15% off at Fantasy Points. FantasyPoints.com, code Pantheon. Score more fantasy points. 